right, well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we are continuing on in our study of church history. Uh, we'd like to open up with a reading uh, from Scripture. So if you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll begin reading at the first verse. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who, who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Now for our, um, uh, for our uh, opening prayer, I'd like us to do something a little bit different, similar to what we did last month, actually. Um, if you will turn in your Trinity hymnal to Roman numeral 7. So it's right there at the very beginning of the hymnal. If you go to number 1 and you go a few pages back, Roman numeral, oh, I'm sorry, 12. I know how to read Roman numerals. <laughs> Roman numeral 12. You see the Lord's Prayer in the Apostles' Creed. We will be covering uh, this morning or this afternoon the rule of faith, which is codified in, the, in this Apostles' Creed, and so I felt it would be good for us to open our meeting together by reciting the Apostles' Creed together as a church. So if you will please stand with me, and let's join in unison our voices as we confess our faith together. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before we get going, um, did everyone get a copy of the handout? I forgot to, I forgot to uh, mention that. Everyone good? We, have a, we need one. I'm, I forgot to get my, give my wife one. Uh, don't, be, uh, don't be daunted. We need one more up here as well, um, Brother Aaron. Don't be daunted by the, uh, the length of the outline. This is actually, as far as word count goes, as, uh, from my manuscript, this is probably one of the shortest lessons I've prepared. Um, there, there's just a lot of quotes that I wanted to make sure you guys had in your hand as I'm, as I'm reading them. I thought it would be helpful for you to have those in front of you. Imagine you lived in a time without a leather-bound Bible. You probably have the Old Testament, maybe a gospel or two, perhaps a handful of Paul's letters, and that's it. And then imagine that people are coming to your church, and they start teaching a new and strange doctrine, one that you had never heard before. Perhaps they are Marcionites. They're telling you that the God who created the world, the God of the Old Testament, is in fact an evil God. And that the true God, who is only love, the true God is the Father of Jesus Christ, and He wants to save you from all the evil that the evil God of the Jews has unleashed on the world. Furthermore, they tell you that your Scripture is corrupted, that you can't trust the books that you do have, and that they are bringing to you the true apostolic faith as it was handed down from Christ to his disciples. Well, how would you respond? How would you prove that their teaching, not yours, is the innovative one and not the true apostolic deposit of faith? Well, this was the situation facing many of the churches in the second century, in the third century. Gnostics and other men like them were claiming that their doctrine was the true secret knowledge that Jesus had handed down to his apostles. How did the early apologists counter these claims? Well, of course, they never, they never shamed uh, away or shied away uh, from appealing to the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. But if a Marcionite comes to you and argues that there are two gods, the evil God of the Old Testament, 
who created the world and the good God of our uh, and Father of Jesus Christ, you could quote a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the Marcionite would, exp- uh, would respond, of course, the evil God of the Old Testament wants you to believe that he's the only one. That's not the scripture of the good God. You might respond, well, Jesus in the New Testament certainly treated the Old Testament as scripture, and he commanded obedience to it. The Marcionite would say, yeah, but your New Testament scriptures have been corrupted by the Jews, and it isn't the true teaching of Christ and his apostles. How would you respond? Well, Tertullian, we've talked a lot about Tertullian in our time together so far. Tertullian, an influential North African theologian, writing around the end of the second century, the beginning of the third, he said this in his book Against Marcion. No doubt, after the time of the apostles, the truth respecting the belief of God suffered corruption. But it is equally certain that during the life of the apostles, their teaching on this great article did not suffer at all, so that no other teaching will have the right of being received as apostolic than that which is at the present day proclaimed in the churches of apostolic foundation. You will, however, find no church of apostolic origin, but such as reposes its Christian faith in the Creator, the God of the Old Testament. But if the churches shall prove to have been corrupt from the beginning, where shall the pure ones be found? Will it be among the adversaries of the Creator? Talking about the Marcionites. Show us then one of your churches, tracing its descent from an apostle, and you will have gained the day. We see that the early apologists not only appealed to Scripture, the ones that they had in any case, they also argued that the faith that they held was consistent with those teachings found in those churches that were known to be founded by the apostles, or at the very least, where the apostles were known to have ministered for a time. Churches like Rome, Corinth, Antioch, Ephesus. Indeed, their faith was the same faith that was believed on by all the true churches throughout the world. This afternoon, we want to consider what we might call the authority structures of the early church. This will be a a two-part lesson. Uh, Thankfully, uh, I reached out to Pastor Kyle because in preparing, uh, we were going to talk about the rule of faith the office of bishop, and the canon of Scripture. Um, and my manuscript was like at 5,500 words, which is a little over an hour. Um, and I still wasn't done. And so I reached out to Pastor Kyle, and he was still looking for someone to cover um, the second service for when he's on vacation. So uh, he opened that up to me. Um, and so uh, this will be a two-part lesson. This week, we'll consider the rule of faith and the office of bishop. And the next time, 
uh, Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll conclude by looking at the canon of Scripture. Well, first, the rule of faith. What is it? Church historian Everett Ferguson defines the rule as a summary of apostolic preaching and teaching to be found most authoritatively in written form in the Scriptures. It went by various names in the writings of the early church, such as the canon of truth, the rule of piety, or the ecclesiastical rule. It was understood as a summary of the apostolic faith that was being taught in the churches. What were the earliest Christians teaching? Well, the substance of this rule is summarized by various fathers. Irenaeus, we've talked about Irenaeus a few times already, uh, Irenaeus was a bishop uh, of a, a church in France at the end of second century, wrote a massive uh, book against heresies, writing against the Gnostics. He gives us one of the earliest witnesses to what this rule contained. And it's a, it's a lengthy quote, but I have, I have it there on the second page of, uh, of your outline so you can follow along. For the church... Although dispersed throughout the whole world, as far as the ends of the earth, received from the apostles and their disciples the faith in one God, the Father Almighty, who has made the heaven, the earth, the seas, and all things in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who was proclaimed through the prophets the plans of God and the comings of Christ, both the birth from the virgin, the passion, the rising from the dead, and the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and His coming again from heaven in the glory of the Father for the summing up of all things and the raising of all humanity, in order that to Christ Jesus, our Lord, God, Savior, and King, according to the good pleasure of the invisible Father, every knee should bow of things in heaven and earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess to Him, and that He might make a just judgment on all, that He might send the spiritual hosts of wickedness, the angels who transgressed and went into apostasy, and the impious, unjust, lawless, and blasphemers among human beings into the eternal fire, but might grant incorruptible life and eternal glory to those who are righteous, holy, and keep His commandments, and who persevere in His love either from the beginning or by repentance, and surround them with eternal glory. Now you'll notice that the rule that Irenaeus presents is thoroughly anti-Gnostic and anti-Marcionite. God, the Father of Jesus Christ, He is the creator of the world. It's not the product of some lesser evil God. And that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took to Himself a true human nature. That the scriptures aren't corrupted, as Marcion claimed, but they are the product of the Holy Spirit 
himself. Christ's ministry is elaborated and its earthiness is emphasized. He was born of a virgin. Crucified, he ascended into heaven bodily. And all of this for the purpose of reconciling all things. Far from treating the world as inherently evil and corrupt, as if it were the product of some lesser demiurge, the whole point of sending Christ into the world was to restore the created order that has fallen in Adam. Other examples of the rule could be given from Tertullian to Hippolytus and Origen, eventually what became known as the Apostles' Creed, what we read uh, together uh, at the start of our, our study, it was a codifying of this summary of the apostolic teaching found in the rule of faith. We can move on to consider the structure of this rule. First notice, <coughs> excuse me, that it is Trinitarian in outline, with separate articles dealing with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Irenaeus says this, and this is the drawing up of our faith, the foundation of the building and the consolidation of a way of life. God the Father, uncreated, beyond grasp, invisible, one God, the maker of all. This is the first and foremost article of our faith. But the second article is the Word of God, the Son of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. And the third article is the Holy Spirit, through whom the prophets prophesied and the patriarchs were taught about God and the just were led in the path of justice. The fathers are probably deriving this structure from the baptismal formula that we find in the Great Commission. You know it by heart probably. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the rule would have served as a baptismal creed that uh, would have been affirmed by the new convert upon baptism. The rule, you'll notice, is also Christocentric. If you look at the Apostles' Creed, for instance, you'll see that the section about Christ takes up the bulk of the document. There are more clauses in that section than the others combined. The rule focuses on who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for our redemption. Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven, suffered and died for our sins, was buried, rose on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is returning in glory. And the Apostles' Creed, as we have it today, says of Christ that he descended into hell. And this makes a lot of people today a bit squeamish when they see that. I don't know if, if uh, you caught that as we were, uh, if you paused before we, we read that together. Um, however, it doesn't have to mean anything other than an elaboration of the fact that Jesus Christ truly died. When Christ died, his body and his soul were separated, his body went into the tomb, and his soul, well, it went 
where every departed soul goes when it dies. And that's why some modern renditions of the creed will change the line to read that he descended to the grave or to the realm of the dead, uh, lest we confuse hell in the creed with the eschatological second death, uh, described as a lake of fire, the place of torment. Uh, that, that's not what is meant uh, by the, the wording hell in, in the creed. Jesus did not go to hell to suffer, as if the death on the cross was not sufficient to accomplish our salvation. The descent was understood as really something of a victory lap, if you will. Some were happy to expound on what they thought Jesus did in hell. For instance, the Didascalia Apostolorum, which is a third century church manual, it says that Jesus slept so that he might evangelize Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all his saints concerning both the end of the age and the coming resurrection of the dead. Now this harrowing of hell, as it has been called, the emptying of hell, has its place in the Christian tradition. And um, if you want a Reformed Baptist treatment on on the the doctrine, uh, Sam Renahan has written a book Uh, a small little book on the doctrine of the descent. The title is in Latin, which doesn't help me. I can't can't come to mind what what the, call to mind what the title of that book is. But Sam Renahan, The Descent, you look it up on Google, you'll find it. Uh, Third, the rule is redemptive historical in outline. It tells the story of redemption, beginning with the creation It assumes the fall when it opens up our redemption in Christ and the application of that redemption to believers in the church and concludes with the Christian hope that Christ is coming again, the resurrection, the judgment, and eternal life. Well, how did the rule function in the early church? It was used to instruct new converts in the faith, Thus, Irenaeus says that we have received the rule of truth through baptism. Uh, The rule functioned, as I've already said, as a type of baptismal creed that was affirmed by a person who was joining the local church. The rule uh, also served, as we've already said, uh, an apologetic function. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, who lived at the the, the latter half of the uh, second century, Clement of Alexandria speaks of a person, quote, who has ceased to be a person of God and to remain faithful to the Lord, spurning the ecclesiastical tradition and darting after the opinions of human heresies. The rule helped to mark out the boundaries between orthodoxy and heresy. But perhaps the most useful function for the rule was its role in Scripture interpretation. Indeed, the Scripture itself was often called the rule of faith. The rule was distinct from Scripture, and it was never set over against the Scriptures as a separate source of authority, but it did provide a summary of the main truths of the Bible. The rule was seen as the plot line or the meta narrative of Scripture. 
And as such, it provides us with a lens through which we can read the Scriptures. The Scriptures were to be interpreted in light of the rule of faith. Clement of Alexandria would speak of, and I love the way he puts this, apprehension and comprehension of the truth through the truth. That's just a fancy way of saying Scripture interprets Scripture. The more difficult parts of the Scripture were to be understood according to what was set forth clearly in the rule. Augustine put it this way, that when faced with a difficult passage, the reader should consult the rule of faith that is gathered from the plain passages of Scripture and from the authority of the church. Again, heresy was defined as whatever went against the rule. Clement of Alexandria said, it is not proper for us in no way to transgress the ecclesiastical rule. Augustine said that one should approve what should be approved and reject what should be rejected in accordance with the rule of faith. In fact, the fathers were often willing to allow different meanings for a single passage. So long as those meanings, uh, meanings derived from Scripture did not contradict the rule. Most notorious example of this was Origen. We've talked about him. Uh, he used the silence of the rule to, as an excuse to, to speak into that void. Uh, and he came up with all kinds of bizarre readings for Scripture. Even Augustine... He believed, and I'm taking this from Everett Ferguson, he believed the interpreter should seek the meaning intended by the biblical author. If this is not evident, the context should guide, and an interpretation should be adopted that agrees with the faith, for any meaning that does not depart from pious belief is acceptable. Well, for us today, the rule of faith can offer a much-needed correction to our modern-day individualistic approach to the Scriptures. Many evangelicals overcorrecting the Roman Catholic abuse of tradition have in turn rejected the Reformed doctrine of sola scriptura for a kind of bare biblicism. What should be the Scripture alone being our ultimate authority has turned into solo Scriptura. In other words, it's the Bible and the Bible alone. Uh, apart from the church, apart from tradition, um, it's me and my, and my own conscience and the Bible, and that's it. The authority of the church and the creeds are replaced with the subjective whims of the individual Bible reader. So that ultimate authority rests with the self and private interpretation. Keith Matheson puts it this way. Scripture is truth. And the church is called to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Not private individuals. It is only within the church 
within the fellowship of believers, that Scripture can be rightly interpreted. Again, Keith Matheson says this, If the church is to regain a credible witness in the world, she must regain the doctrine of the apostles and of the early church. She must regain this doctrine, which the classical reformers attempted to reintroduce into the church. The traditional apostolic rule of faith is the foundational hermeneutical context of Scripture. To reject this rule of faith on the basis of an appeal to Scripture is to immediately read Scripture outside of its Christian context. For too long, the concept of tradition has been misused and abused in the Christian church. It has been both unduly exalted and unnecessarily reviled. Neither of these attitudes is Christian. Well, where is the rule of faith found most clearly in the church today, if not in our creeds and our confessions? As Reformed Baptists, we are a confessional people, and we should never lose sight of that significant distinctive. Well, we move on then to consider the development of the office of bishop. We could say that the rule of faith reflects the teaching of all true churches in the world. But that begs the question, which churches are we going to look at in order to make that kind of judgment? Which churches are true churches? The Gnostics had churches. Marcionites had their churches. Well, in answer to this question, Tertullian in his book on the prescription against heretics, says this, It is plain that all teaching that agrees with those apostolic churches, which are the wombs and origins of the faith, must be set down as truth, it being certain that such doctrine contains that which the church received from the apostles, the apostles from Christ and Christ from God. He says of these false teachers, let them unfold a series of their bishops proceeding by succession from the beginning in such a way that this first bishop of theirs had as their authority and predecessor someone of the apostles or one of the apostolic men who, however, associated with the apostles. Therefore, it's impossible to talk about the rule of faith without considering this idea of apostolic succession. A church is a true church only if it is in agreement with an apostolic church, reason Tertullian. An apostolic church is a church with a bishop who can trace his line of ordination back to one of the apostles or an associate of an apostle like Mark, Timothy, Titus, what have you. The bishop of Rome, for instance, had been ordained by a bishop uh, before him, and that bishop had been ordained by the guy that was before him. And it was argued that this line of ordination could be traced all the way back to the apostles Peter and Paul. So we start to see the use of these succession lists. And these were a vital tool in early church apologetics. Irenaeus gives us such an example 
uh, of this in his uh, book, Against Heresies. I have it there in, uh, in your handout. I'm not going to bother trying to butcher all of these names that are in this list. Um, but you can see uh, at, the beginning, uh, at the beginning of page four what one of those lists might have looked like. He starts, the blessed, uh, the blessed apostles, Peter and Paul, then having founded and built up the church of Rome, committed into the hands of Linus, the office of the episcopate, and then he continues on, he lists all the names going from Linus to uh, the bishop that was in Rome during his day. And he says this, if you'll skip down to the, the second to last sentence that begins in this order. He says, in this order, and by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles and the preaching of the truth have come down to, them, to us. And this is most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down in truth. And by the middle of the third century, you have a very clear pattern that seems to have developed in most of the churches throughout the world. Uh, the local church was governed by a threefold office with a single bishop over a college or group of elders or presbyters. The terminology can get confusing. Uh, who were served by a group of deacons. So you had bishop, presbyters, and deacons, the threefold office. Now, this pattern is attested to as early as the first decade of the second century in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius was a bishop, and as he was on his way to Rome to be martyred, he sent off a bunch of letters uh, to the churches near the cities that he passed through. And he recognized this threefold structure. He says, for instance, in uh, his letter to uh, the Magnesians, be eager to do everything in godly harmony, the bishop presiding in the place of God and the presbyters in the place of the council of the apostles and the deacons who are most dear to me, having been entrusted with the service of Jesus Christ, who before the ages was with the Father and appeared at the end of time. And by the time you get to Cyprian, who was an influential bishop uh, in the city of Carthage in the middle of the third century, you have developed this idea that the bishops are the successors of the apostles. Indeed, they have apostolic authority. In one of his letters, Cyprian writes, For their part, deacons should bear in mind that it was the Lord who chose apostles, that is to say, bishops and appointed leaders, whereas it was the apostles who, after the ascension of our Lord into heaven, established deacons to assist the church and themselves in their office of bishop. Uh, clearly, Cyprian conflates the office of apostle with the office of bishop. You still don't have this idea, however, of what would become papal supremacy, the idea that there was this bishop in Rome who had power and jurisdiction over all other bishops. Uh, we do see the bishop of Rome acting as if he did have this power from time to time. Uh, you might remember uh, we talked a while back about Victor, 
the bishop of Rome, who threatened to excommunicate the churches of Asia Minor because he felt they were keeping the wrong day of Easter. And uh, the other bishops uh, of the day uh, rose up against Victor and, and rebuked him, telling him he didn't have that authority to do that. Cyprian himself would have a sharp disagreement with another Roman bishop, a guy named Stephen, over the question of whether or not a baptism performed in a heretical or schismatic group should be considered valid. So at first, the bishop was the head of a college of presbyters. His main role was pastoral. But over time, the bishop uh, takes on more and more of an administrative role. Each city would have its own bishop, and the bishop would have authority over all of the churches in that city. He would ordain elders and deacons. He would settle disputes between them, and he would establish order and discipline in the churches. And while in theory all of the bishops were equal, some bishops were more equal than others, if that makes sense. Uh, five cities were singled out as having a, uh, a special role. Uh, Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. Uh, eventually the bishops of these cities would become, in the east, uh, the patriarchs, and in the West, uh, the lone bishop in the West, in Rome, would become the Pope. These would preside over local synods and councils and would play a dominant role in ordaining bishops in lesser cities. Now, you're probably looking at all of that and thinking to yourself, where is that in the Bible? <laughs> well, it's hard to deny that this sort of apostolic succession is a marked departure from what we read in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see a dual office structure, presbyters or elders and deacons. In fact, scholars generally agree that in the New Testament, uh, bishop and presbyter are titles that refer to the same office. Um, that, that word, where does that word bishop come from? Uh, it, it is, in, in a matter of speaking, a transliteration of a Greek word, episkopos, meaning overseer. Um, we don't see it so much in our modern translations. You will find it in the King James Version, um, but it's the word overseer. That's, that's where that, that word uh, episkopos or bishop comes from. But uh, take, for instance, Acts chapter 20. Uh, this, is what, this is what we read there. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders, that is, the presbyteros, the presbyters of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopus, bishops, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So the elders in Ephesus are the episcopus. They are the bishops of Ephesus. That, that title, elder and bishop, refers to the same office in the scripture. Evidently, the churches didn't have a single bishop, but were ruled by a group of bishops or elders. 
And this plurality of elders in this two-office structure continued on into the second and third centuries, well attested in the writings of the period. And there was a clear distinction between the apostles who served a unique role in their apostolic office and the elders of the church. These aren't the same office. Uh, in fact, uh, when the apostle James is martyred in the book of Acts, we do not read of any attempts being made to replace him. The idea that the apostleship was designed for a particular time in redemptive history, that first century, and that after that time it was no longer to continue, was a general belief that was held up until the middle of the third century. That apostolic office was unique in its role and function. So how do we explain this development from a twofold office of elders and deacons to a threefold office of the monoepiscopate, a single bishop over elders served by deacons? Well, first, you probably had certain elders in these churches who were more prominent because they labored publicly in the teaching and preaching. Uh, all elders are able to teach and uh, share in the authority of the church, yet Paul makes a distinction when he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, assuming uh, that there are, there are elders that do not labor in preaching and teaching. So for instance, here at Bethany, uh, we are blessed uh, to be served by three elders, three pastors, uh, but we do have one elder uh, who, because of his public ministry in preaching and teaching from the pulpit week from week, uh, would be more identified with the leadership of the church, especially by those who are outsiders. Uh, so I, I think you understand this, this concept. For instance, we'll see who, who are the true Reformed Baptists amongst us. When I say the Metropolitan Tabernacle, who comes to mind? Spurgeon. We all know Spurgeon. How many other, uh, uh, how many of the other 20 or so elders that served alongside him can you name? Probably, probably not too many. Uh, if I said uh, uh, Bethlehem Baptist, is it, or is it Bethlehem? Doesn't he... Yeah, he pronounces it funny. But Bethlehem Baptist, who, who's the guy? John Piper, right? How many other... I don't, I don't even think he's the elder there anymore. I think he's retired. But we still think of John Piper. How many of other elders can you, can you think of? Probably not too many. Uh, Grace Community Church. John MacArthur. And you maybe... Does, is Phil Johnson... I, I was going to look this up before I got up here, but I forgot. He's an elder in the church, so maybe you can think of others, but there's probably a handful of others that you can't name. So there are some elders who are up in front, in front of the people that are more public, and so they get associated with, uh, with the, 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 the leadership of the local church, and that might explain why we see this, this singling out of a, of a single individual um, in, in uh, the development of this office of bishop. Others have suggested that cultural influence 
also might have played a role in its development. The Roman Empire was a very hierarchical system uh, where you had uh, the guy at the top, right, the emperor. He's dictating to everyone else below him. And this, this top-down structure is so ingrained in the culture, it's, it's even prevalent in the individual family, right, with the, uh, the paterfamilias uh, being the head of the household, uh, having authority over all of those who are under him. Uh, so so this, this authority pattern, so ingrained in Roman culture, uh, it's easy to see how that could bleed over into the local church and how it was run. We can acknowledge that this threefold office structure was helpful for the early church in combating heresy and schism, but that it marks a departure from the apostolic pattern that we see established in the churches, in the writings of the New Testament. Instead, the apostolic succession that we, and the church fathers for that matter, are ultimately concerned with is not the succession of a particular office, but the succession of doctrine. Uh, commenting on Irenaeus's concept of apostolic succession, this is what Everett Ferguson says. To be in the succession was not itself sufficient to guarantee correct doctrine. The succession functioned negatively to mark off the heretics who withdrew from the church. A holy life and sound teaching were also required for true leaders. The succession pertained to faith and life rather than to the transmission of special gifts. The gift of truth received with the office of teaching was not a gift guaranteeing that what was taught would be true, a sort of proto-papal infallibility, if you will, but was the truth itself, uh, but was the truth itself as a gift. Each holder of the teaching chair in the church received the apostolic doctrine as a deposit to be faithfully transmitted to the church. Apostolic succession, as formulated by Irenaeus, was from one holder of the teaching chair in a church to the next, and not from ordainer to ordained as it became uh, in the Roman Catholic context. And so for Tertullian... Churches were apostolic that agreed in the same faith, even if not founded by apostles. It's the faith that matters. It was in the context of the local church, as the pillar and ground of truth, where the gospel was safeguarded and proclaimed, and where her benefits were to be found. This is why the Reformers agreed with the Fathers that to depart from the fellowship of the local church was dangerous and potentially soul-destroying. Luther said, outside the Christian church, that is where the gospel is not, there is no forgiveness. And Calvin presented this exchange in his Geneva Catechism. I have it for you there on the back of your, of your handout. Where the minister would say to the child, why do you subjoin the forgiveness of sins to the church? The child responds, because no one obtains it, that is forgiveness, unless he has previously been united with the people of God, cultivates this unity with the body of Christ up to the end, and thus testifies that he is a true member of the church. 
The minister then asks, you conclude from this that outside the church there is no salvation but only damnation and ruin? And the child was to respond, certainly. Those who disrupt from the body of Christ and split its unity into schisms are quite excluded from the hope of salvation so long as they remain in dissidence of this kind. Well, as we draw our time to a conclusion, uh, we could ask, why should we even be concerned with these things? Are these just old apologetic tools that have, we have mostly retired? Or do we see some relevant, some relevant use of these for our own day? Well, first off, uh, just on a very practical level, as we cover the next 13 centuries or so, Lord willing, um, we're going to be talking a lot about bishops. And so it's probably a good idea to, if you didn't know already, now you know who bishops are and where they came from, what they're doing. So that's just on a very practical level. But when we look at these two things, the rule of faith and apostolic succession, we are touching on two essential attributes of the church of Jesus Christ. Orthodoxy and Catholicity. By orthodoxy, we mean correct belief, in contrast with heresy and false teaching. Oh, the word Catholic comes from the Greek word meaning universal or worldwide. Catholicity stresses the oneness, the unity of the church throughout the world, and that spans the ages. And this is set against the spirit of schism and division that is all too prevalent in our churches today. And despite certain denominations hijacking these terms, Orthodox, Catholic, we who have trusted in Christ, who hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints and embodied in the Scriptures, we who have been joined to the local church and participate in her sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we are truly Orthodox and truly Catholic. And these are virtues that we should strive to cultivate. Well, eventually, left unchecked by that apostolic deposit that we find in the Bible, the rule of faith would morph into the infallible teaching magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. And this emphasis on apostolic succession, uh, the apostolic succession of bishops anyway, would come to focus on one particular bishop, the Bishop of Rome, and would morph into the era of papal supremacy. That's why when we turn next time, and when we return next time, we'll turn our attention to the canon of Scripture, the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Well, with that, uh, we will conclude. If you have any questions, uh, we could probably take some questions with a mic. Can everybody raise your hands at once? Questions, thoughts, comments? My old pastor used to say, charges of heresy. I know this is 
pretty heady stuff for right after lunch. I, hopefully it wasn't too drawn out. Well, that's good if there's no thoughts or comments, questions. Yep, got one. All right. <laughs> So um, it's weird to hear my own voice in the mic. <laughs> so um, earlier on, you were talking about like, from what I understood, you're saying something along the lines of how the um, the confessions or the uh, or the rule of faith was yeah. like the lens that which um, we had to use to interpret uh, scripture to know exactly how it could be read, and I was. I don't know if this is because my mind, I was jumping around. You're, I didn't know if you were saying that as like building like the historical plot line for us to follow. And I was kind of curious to the position as Christians in today's world of how we use confessions. Yeah. Because I, I think confessions are absolutely necessary, but yeah. I know that there are confessions that are, you know, we would disagree with. Right. And, Right. You know, there's there's some that are disagreed with within people who are the body of Christ between right. like you know we'd say brothers, and then there's other confessions that are we would say like abiblical in its nature. So just kind of maybe around how, and you kind of summarized it a little bit at the end, but how you're saying that scripture is the sole infallible like authority as we're approaching the confession. Right. So it's kind of like a hand in hand type thing. Right. Right. But, um, I guess if we can put a question mark somewhere on that, it was more along the lines of like how, how we approach confessions from today's world and how that's used to, to guide us with scripture. If you have any, some like clarifying points with that. Yeah, so um, th this idea of, of the regular fide, right? The rule of faith being um, a tool for interpreting the scripture. Uh, we understand that only because the rule of faith provides for us the scripture's own storyline, right? So it, it, it takes uh, the, the clear truths of scripture and presents it together in a way that is concise and easy to understand. And that's why we have this principle of moving from uh, what is clearly set down in, in the creeds and the confessions, in the rule, moving from there to those truths that are uh, uh, more obscure, those passages that are difficult to understand. Um, uh, when you talk about you know different confessions and, and different, of course there there are going to be differences between a Baptist and a Presbyterian and those who are more continental Reformed, uh, because we have different confessions, um, and that's a good point. I I heard this this week, and I I think it comes from Timothy George. I think that's correct. Uh, he he said something along the lines of, and this is secondhand. Uh, he said we are we are Baptist best when we are not Baptist first. In other words, um, we look at those ecumenical creeds, right? The, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, the, the Athanasian Creed, uh, the, the Chalcedonian Definition, those things that are agreed on by virtually all traditions, uh, all Christian traditions throughout the world. Um, I think we would want to give uh, priority to those and then when we move on into confessions, we would be a bit looser. Um, 
Because, of course, we're not going to say that someone who disagrees with the London Baptist, say on baptism, is a heretic or is outside of the true church. We wouldn't want to say that. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, and yet, a, a lot more could be said uh, about that. There's, it's, that's a deep subject. And, and uh, an issue of great divide, if you're listening to, to some of the guys out there today. Uh, even in the Reformed Baptist world, that, that's... Uh, that's a hot-button topic. Good question. Hopefully I answered it. Thoughts, comments, questions? All right, well, uh, Brother Aaron is going to lead us in our closing hymn, 559, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And this is always awkward for me, like the transition. I've said this to you, the transition from the last hymn to the la- and, and the, the final prayer. Let me pray for us real quick before we, before we start singing. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, the gathering together of the saints together to consider uh, these uh, important truths from church history. We're thankful, Lord, that we have uh, the truths of your word handed down from us uh, by faithful men uh, from generation to generation. And that when even error has crept in and false teaching and heresy, Lord, you have been faithful to your church and you have upheld her in the truth that you have delivered uh, through the mouths of uh, your son and and his apostles. Father, um, we know that we are not yet perfect and we know that we strive uh, to, to bring every thought captive to the obedience of your word. We pray that you would help us as we seek to cultivate these virtues of orthodoxy and Catholicity. Help us to uh, strive for the unity of the faith, Um, even as the Lord Jesus Christ prayed that we would not only be sanctified in the truth, and your word is truth, but that we would be truly one, even as, as you and your Son are one. We look forward to that great day when we will be joined together with our brothers and sisters across denominations, down through the ages, before your throne of glory in heaven as we sing together um, our faith and we celebrate uh, the great uh, salvation that you have wrought for us in your son, Jesus. Help us to cultivate um, that spirit of orthodoxy and Catholicity, uh, especially here uh, in our midst as we strive to, to love one another and grow, uh, grow in our love for you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.